welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. I'm thrilled to introduce our very special guest uh, today. He's known to millions of people uh, for one of three things. Uh, maybe from the fact that he used to present Blue Peter. Yes, some whoops of Blue Peter. Uh, maybe from the fact that he used to present uh, football on Sky Sports. Some slightly louder whoops for that. Uh, or, or maybe more seriously for the fact that his story hit the news headlines uh, over the last couple of years because... Uh, he and his son Ethan experienced an enormous tragedy when Simon Thomas's wife Gemma very suddenly died. And he has behaved with incredible courage uh, in being honest about the struggle of that and also in being honest about his own faith journey within one of the greatest tragedies anyone could imagine. So before I welcome Simon to the stage, just take a look at this video clip to remind yourself of what happened. Probably the toughest challenge any parent could ever face is having to tell your son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I left the hospital and left Dr Annie and his team at... She died at quarter to six on a Friday night and we left about an hour later. I came out of the hospital. I think I woke up every patient there because I just screamed. Mm. Because I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a man of faith. I screamed at God, why? Why have you left my boy without a mum? Mm. And we eventually got in the car and all the way there, all I could think as we travelled back home was this story from 18 months ago. He went on holiday and he's got a little cuddly toy, his favourite one like all kids do. It was a little mon monkey and it's called Utu. And unfortunately he got caught up in the laundry in the hotel and was last seen heading to Athens. Oh. All I could remember was his reaction to that. He was heartbroken. And I thought, I've got to go home and tell him his mum's gone. And, you know, what I didn't give him credit for, kids, as you know, they grow up and they develop so much in 18 months. But all the way there, my heart was pounding and uh, well, lots of family and friends were there and they'd taken the kids back from the hospital. He only knew, he went in to see her twice that day and he said, bring him in. He'll thank you for it in later life. But I didn't tell Ethan she was going. I just said, mummy's seriously ill. And I, I held him to her ear a couple of times and he, he said that he loved her and then went to play with his cousins. And I got home and I thought, I've just got to, I've got to grab him and tell him. So I took him upstairs and looked into his deep brown eyes and I just said, I'm, Ethan, I'm really sorry, but they couldn't make mummy better and you can't dress it up. I just said, mummy's, mummy's died. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he collapsed onto the floor and I just collapsed down there with him. I just held him, I held him and I rolled on the floor with him. And he's been amazing since, but that, I would never ever wish that on my worst, worst enemy to have to tell your kid. He's got no brothers and sisters, we went for IVF twice, we couldn't have any more kids. He's been dealt a really, tough, tough blow in life. Yeah. Um, and at the age of eight, to have lost his mum already. Uh, that's what I find the most heart heartbreaking yeah. thing in the whole thing. How are you, um, how are you both coping, oh, coping now? Because you, you have your, your snack notes. <laughs> no, it's okay. okay. You should be able it's to right. speak it It's you. okay, it's all right. It's Sorry. All right. You, uh, you have your snack notes, which you leave for him, don't you? <laughs> you got a handful there. I have. Do you one? Thank you. you uh, Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Simon Thomas. 
I've kind of had a shave today. Yeah, you're looking terrific, Unlike if I may you. say so. I'm, I'm going downhill fast. Uh, just, yeah, I, what, uh, you make me look um, old. Uh, Simon, do, let's just back up, first of all, a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the story of, of how all of that panned out, and uh, if you don't mind, just how, how Gemma died. So, so briefly, because I, I don't turn up at events like this and assume that everybody uh, knows exactly what happened. And we're going to talk about mental health and what I was going through a little bit later. But I'd come away from Sky in the November of 2017 because of a battle with mental health. And whilst that was happening, Gemma began complaining of headaches that went from a few a day to being most of the day. They became a lot longer. Uh, and after trips to the doctors, three in the end, uh, on some of the visits, they felt that probably it was the stress she felt towards seeing her husband having to come off at work for the first time ever with mental illness. And so a lot of it is stress. But then into that comes this very acute fatigue. I mean, we didn't know about this symptom at the time, but since becoming president of Bloodwise and all the work I do with them, I know that bruises that don't go are a telltale sign. They were there as well. And over the penultimate weekend in November, she goes downhill very rapidly. We are in A&E in Reading, where we live on the Monday nights. And by the Tuesday afternoon in the specialist hospital in Oxford, the guy you saw in the video clip just sat to my left, Dr. Ronnie Pennicott, is diagnosing Gemma with what's called acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very aggressive, thankfully rare, affects around about 3,000 in the UK every year, rare form of leukemia, um, that the survival rate at the moment is just 15% beyond five years. So had she got through that week and beyond, the outlook was pretty dire. Uh, and then on the Friday, she develops a complication where she ends up with multiple bleeds in her brain. And Dr. Andy is telling me uh, at around about eight o'clock on a Friday morning in November, that your wife only has a few hours left to live. And the family gathered around us, as you heard in that clip. Ethan came in a couple of times, and by quarter to six, having only celebrated her 40th birthday three months before in the garden where we live in Reading in the sunshine, and she was so full of life and vibrance and health, this disease that she'd only had for around about a month before that diagnosis. That's how quickly it develops and why help is so crucial. And we didn't get it early enough. She's gone. So suddenly your whole world's fallen apart, obviously. And it's you and it's Ethan. You're in the public spotlight. You have a faith, but you don't find that easy, I should imagine. And you said to Holly Willoughby in the, in the, in the interview there, you know, I'm a man of faith, I'm a Christian, but I was screaming at God, why? So we're now two years and almost two months on from Gemma's uh, death. Have you got any answers to that why question? No, <laughs> is the answer. But what I learned to do is begin to let go of the why. I started to ask more, where are you God in all this? But in terms of trying to find an answer to what had happened, I realized as the months went on that I probably was never gonna find an answer to that question. But you know, I was full of such rage in the immediate aftermath. You know, my, one of my closest friends is a guy you know well, he's our vicar in Reading at Greyfriars, David Walker, has walked with me through so much of this journey. And he was in the room along with friends and family that day as she goes, and a few hours later we walk out of the hospital into that November chill. And he describes the moment that my rage came flooding out, and I nearly blow this poor old boy off his feet who's walking into the hospital with his walking stick because the question, why God, why, came flying out in a fit of rage. And for the next few weeks, I regularly shouted at God that very question. Often, it was in a dressing gown, 
and a pair of Wellington boots down the end of our garden in Cavisham and Reading, because at the end of our garden is the River Thames. So the joggers on the other side of the river were regularly going past thinking, who on earth is that? But I went there and I shouted, why a God? And in the end, I had to come to a place of understanding and peace that however many Christians would say, and they meant it well, one day you will find out. Right now, you can't make sense of it. I had to let go of that and actually go, I don't think I'll ever find out why. Because I actually, my personal belief is that heaven is what God's world is supposed to be. A place where pain does not exist. A pain where there is no more anxiety. There is no more fear. There is no more cancer. There is no more early death. There is no more death. And when you get there, the questions we have in life, where we feel we've been wronged, where we feel God has let us down, it will be so glorious that I believe they won't matter anymore. There's not going to be a queue over to the left of the people who want to ask a question before they enjoy glory. I just think it will be too amazing. So the question stopped being why, because I felt I'm not going to get an answer to this and the whole area of suffering, it became more as the months went on, well, where are you, God, in all of this? And, and as that happened, my rage and anger began to dissipate. So helpful. Uh, why there aren't always answers, where are you, God? That's great. And Simon, um, you, you've talked a bit about m mental health. You touched on that earlier. And I know you, there's something, you, again, you, you've been high profile around that. But even just before the, the tragedy of, of, of November 2017, uh, there was a moment, wasn't there, at Old Trafford, I think, you were about to present a, a, a Man U uh, Spurs game. T tell us what, what happened then. So that was, that was, as it turned out to be, the last time I would ever present a game for Sky for a whole myriad of different reasons. But it was my second battle with mental health. The first had happened three or four years beforehand and it came out of not being able to have any more kids and I was talking about it very briefly there about the two rounds of IVF we had. We had Ethan in 2009 but then found out as we wanted to have a brother or sister for him that, that very sadly Jim had a very very serious fertility issue that men conceiving naturally was going to be almost impossible. It makes in many ways Ethan a bit of a miracle and not just in terms of him being here, but in terms of the way he has navigated his way through the last two years, he is definitely that. And God's had his hand so firmly upon that boy's shoulder. But we reacted to two rounds of IVF in different ways. The first one didn't work at all. IVF, for anyone who here has been through it, is hard. It offers hope, but it's black and white. It overworks or it doesn't. And for 75% of people, it doesn't work. And the second time it did work, but then Gemma miscarried. And, and we dealt with it differently. Gemma leans into friends, as often women do. I did the classic bloke thing of, of isolating myself, beginning to disengage myself from not just the people around me, but from friends as well, and dealt with it on my own in like this dark cave. And I stayed in that cave for too long, where I was angry and bitter at the world, angry at the perception I had that for everyone else, this was such an easy area. Social media does not help this. But the, just the idea that everyone was else was putting kids out like a cash machine dispenses £10 notes. But of course, the truth is, for many of those people, it would have been a battle as well. But I was angry and bitter, and it took me to a place where depression hit for the first time. I got medication, counselling, and eventually came through it, and thankfully didn't have to step away from work. But then in the autumn of 2017, this was illogical depression. That was logical. You could see the reason where it came from. This time I couldn't, because life felt good. The angst about not having any more kids had gone. We were enjoying Ethan. Yeah. We were enjoying life. I'd got to the Premier League in Sky, a kind of 11-year journey at Sky to eventually get to the very top. Everything you would look at and think, life 
is pretty much perfect right now was there. And it did feel good. And then suddenly the clouds began to gather again. Suddenly, without warning, I'm feeling this anxiety around every time I work, that feeling you would probably have if you've got an A-level or an important exam, you've done no revision, that knotted feeling in your stomach. And then the panic attacks begin. And I think, thinking back on why that happened, I began to see why it happened now, the pressure of doing that job, suddenly being in the shop window for Sky, there's an awful lot of scrutiny upon every performance, the demands of the pundits you're working with, people like Carragher and Neville who play the game at the very highest level, demand the very best, the imposter syndrome of feeling I'm not good enough to be doing this job, and then just the adrenaline of going on air on a Saturday at lunchtime for a job that really doesn't matter, but the pressure that comes with it is if you mess up, you mess up in front of everybody who's watching that game and nothing is missed. And I think over time, it was like a glass being filled. And eventually, as that autumn began, the glass began in my mind to overflow and everything comes in. And I end up it culminating at Old Trafford that day with a panic attack and feel it coming on in the studio. We are on air in 20 minutes' time for United against Tottenham. I had to leave Graham Souness and Jamie Redknapper in the studio, nothing to do with them, and get out. I ran across the busy bar that sits adjacent to the studio at Old Trafford, found the disabled Lou was free, grabbed it, locked the door because I knew I would be on my own and left alone there and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. My breathing was shallow and fast and my heartbeat was going, and I called Gemma and just said, I'm in trouble, and she got me back to my feet, she prayed a prayer, and I got back into the studio and got on air. It was actually bizarrely, bizarrely like a holiday from everything you were feeling where the red light went on and the count in your ear went three, two, one on air. For anyone who's not sat in front of a camera, that must feel ridiculous that that would be kind of a release, but it was, because it's that fight or flight moment. If I don't fight, I'm gonna die a horrible death in front of all the people watching back at home, and my boss, a few weeks later, as we talked about all this, and he knew what was going on, said, I've watched that game back, and if anything, your performance on that day was higher than ever. And that's the amazing thing, not just about God, who stood alongside me that day, but also the way that the brain can deal, that even when it's going through something traumatic and disconcerting, can still pull it off when it matters most. Thank you. So, for people here who are struggling with mental health, challenges, maybe in their own life, their family, loved ones, what advice would you give to us, especially men maybe, who, who are struggling with their health mentally? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't always do this to the exception of women, because I know a lot of women go through this, um, and for them it's as significant as when it happens to a guy. The problem we have, for most of us guys, is we're just not very good at vocalising any of this, and what we tend to do when life deals us tough events as we tend to do what I did after those rounds of IVF is I begin to isolate myself. I begin to withdraw from maybe coming to church on a Sunday morning. It might have been for a guy sat here, actually for a woman, it's been a real effort just getting here today. Everything else in you was saying, don't go. Just remain on your own. Deal with this on your own. I say to people, don't deal with it alone. It's the worst place you can go. When you begin to isolate yourself and uncouple yourself from those who love you, it takes you to an even darker place. And isolation and loneliness are two really bad, bad partners of mental health. Find people around you who can understand you. There will be people who've never been through this, who can never fully understand what it's like. But understanding is so important to people going through this. I found Sky's response brilliantly surprising. I expected kind of judgment, kind of get yourself right, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time for the next game. It wasn't, it was, we want to understand what you're going through. How can we help you? What can we put in place to make sure that we don't lose you for months, but actually we get you back soon? But of course, events then went in a very different direction. I never returned. 
but it wasn't for those reasons, is understanding. And also, understand when you're getting alongside people who are going through this, don't try and be judgmental. Don't try and come up with smart answers because you won't always have them. But also, recognize that when you ask that question, how are you, you may get a response back that's going to be tough to hear. It's going to be tough to hear. But go there with that person. Because just knowing you're not alone when it comes to mental health, when it comes to grief, is huge. It's huge because you will feel like I'm the only one dealing with this, but actually there's people in this auditorium right now who are dealing with all these kind of things and knowing you're not alone is really very powerful. But guys have to do what you, and that quote I used of yours in that blog all those months ago, we have to dare to be vulnerable. We have to open up that fist and be, as particularly as men, okay to say I'm vulnerable. I'll just finish off on this by saying this. I had three or four calls during that brief period between coming off work and then Gemma falling ill from really well-respected players, players from the game who are not playing anymore, who you would look at and say they were absolute giants of the game. They must have everything in terms of their lives sorted. And yet three or four of them rang me up and said, I've gone through something very similar. And I only wish now, as I sit here now, two years on from that, that they, at some stage, will have the courage to open up. Because when they do, particularly in the world of football, where thankfully one or two more players are opening up, but mental health issues are huge. They are huge within football. It's just not talked about much. Those guys who spoke to me would change the game. Well, speaking of daring to be vulnerable, you have written this incredibly vulnerable and really helpful uh, book, Love Inter Interrupted Navigating Grief One Day at a Time. And... And um, I, it's, a, it, it's not an easy read, I'll be honest with you. It's not, it's not really holiday reading, is it? I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Possibly. You're speaking to a man who suggested his wife going to see Schindler's List on our honeymoon. Did, so, you, did uh, you go? We did, actually. You went? Remarkable. It, it was... Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't recommend it. Uh, and um, I mean, the honeymoon was otherwise terrific. Uh, but, but, but other than the honeymoons, this is a fantastic read. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think will help a lot of people as they're processing the things we're talking about, bereavement, uh, um, you know, solo parenting, uh, mental health issues, all the rest of it. And, and, and one of the things I love is you're honest about your faith, but you don't ram it down anyone's throats. This is an easy book for people who don't have faith to read and to connect with and, and understand. Uh, and one of the things you talk about in here is um, that, that experience of a sort of a parallel universe, Talk to us a little bit about just what it feels like when suddenly your whole life is taken away from you, really. Yeah, it's, it's a phrase that the, the, the bereaved will often use, but actually people going through mental health problems, very serious illness will, will probably feel as well. The parallel universe where you're very much in the world still, you're physically in the world, you're present, you just don't feel part of it any longer. And I remember the first time that really hit me very, very hard was actually on that journey home that I was talking about on this morning when I'm going back to tell Ethan that most desperate of news. And we had not eaten all day, and we see the glowing arches of McDonald's in the distance on the road between Oxford and Reading, and we, we pulled in. And it was like an assault on the senses. It was like being smacked around the chops with something very wet, heavy, and cold because there was life just carrying on as it is always carried on on a Friday night at McDonald's in Oxford. The crackle of the chip fire, the sounds of kids arguing over those iPads, the shout for more quarter pounders from the guys and girls behind the tills. 
just the hum of a normal Friday night in Oxford, just outside Oxford. And I walked in there and thought, my world has stopped. Everything I thought was the future has been shredded. It's gone. I'm going home to tell my boy. And you have the audacity, the cheek, the rudeness to carry on just doing life. But of course, they didn't know me. They don't know Gemma. They don't know about Ethan. And they don't know what's just happened. And it's one of the hardest things to deal with when you go through the tough events in life is that it doesn't matter who you are, how famous or successful you've been. When moments like this happen in life, life will just carry on. If you think back to 97 and those extraordinary, quite frankly, surreal events that surrounded the death of Princess Diana, our perception was, because it was wall-to-wall news coverage, that the whole nation had stopped and was heading to Kensington Palace to lay flowers. The reality was the vast majority of the nation were still carrying on with their jobs, with the school run, with all the things that come with life. And when you're bereaved, when you're in a hard place, it's a hard thing to accept, but that is how it works. I call it in the book that the rhythm of life never stops beating. And for a time, it's hard to accept that because you feel no longer part of the world. Taking Ethan back to school a week later, walking back into that playground, I felt utterly separate from everyone around me. And I actually felt at times separate from my friends and my family, even in places like this, in church, where for moments you feel the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit, and yet you feel cut off from every single person around you. And that included sometimes my sisters or best friends who are standing alongside me. It's a really tough place to be in. And I think over time what happens, it's a little bit like the re-entry of the shuttle when it used to come back. They have to pitch it in at a certain angle and it glows, those white tiles glow because of the friction of re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, heats the whole thing up and it's a bumpy ride back in. But then eventually it all quietens down and that big heavy lump glides back to Earth and lands with a bit of a thud and a parachute. It was like that. Over those months, it was like re-entering Earth's atmosphere and re-engaging with life. But for a time, it felt you were in the world, but absolutely no longer part of it. So helpful. And well, there'll be people here probably today feeling that way. And um, so thank you again for, for, for helping frame that uh, experience. Um, and Simon, inevitably, over these two years... You've moved on. Uh, life has moved on. Uh, um, you're probably able to go to McDonald's now. And, oh yes, and not yeah, yeah. you know have, have a many time times. Many, many times. <laughs> Clearly not as many as me. And uh, <laughs> and and your faith has probably developed and moved on. Talk to us a little bit about how your faith has grown and developed through this process. Yeah, so the breaking news, is I've, I've held on to my faith. Uh, there were times when I didn't want to. There were times when I'd had enough. You know, I sometimes get asked the question um, in kind of secular settings, why did you hold on to your faith? Did it make the experience easier? And I'd actually say for the first few weeks and months, it made it harder because, of course, if you've got a faith and you've got a God, then you have questions you want to ask this God. If you have no faith, there's no questions to ask of a God you don't believe in. So it adds almost a layer of complexity to what already is incredibly tough. But, of course... Without faith, without my belief in God, then the, the, the hope dies. The hope dies. And I didn't want it to die for myself, and I definitely don't want it to die for my boy. That belief, that firm belief he has, that one day he'll see his mum again. It's just, as he said in his words, over a year ago, I've got a long, long wait. He has, and I believe, I know, he's going to have an amazing life. 
But he says it in grace. If you ever have grace at lunch on a Sunday, he used to do it before and he still does it. And he always says, same old grace. Pray that we, uh, you know, know that we're really blessed. Thank you, Daddy, for the food. Hope it's all right. I have got better. And then we pray that, that Mummy and actually Pompa, because he lost Gemma's dad to blood cancer just a year after losing Mum, we pray that Mum and Pompa are having a good time in heaven. You know, if, if the hope goes, that prayer goes. And so ultimately I do believe although I didn't believe it for a while, that God is a God of love. And what's changed, I think, over the last two years is how I see the way God the Father, God the Son, and the God of the Holy Spirit actually worked in my life over the last two years and understanding them in a very new and very direct way. God the Father is the God who I can absolutely and have full permission to rant at. I can be angry at God. I can ask him the questions. I can stand like an absolute lunatic at the end of my garden in a dressing gown and Wellington boots early in the morning with only a pair of boxer shorts frightening joggers out. I can shout at God because the Bible, you know, is full of people doing exactly that. And our God is big enough and powerful enough and mighty enough. The God of the universe, the God of earth, our God is big enough to take us. And so if you're facing an impossible situation in life and you're angry at God, it's okay. It's okay to be angry at God, and it's okay to ask him the big questions, because our God can handle it. God the Son was the one for whom gets alongside those who are struggling. He gets alongside the brokenhearted. He gets along the misfits in society, and in particular, as we read in God's word, he gets alongside those who mourn. He does. And I felt it so tangibly on the second Saturday morning after she'd gone. I hadn't slept well that night yet again. I was up from about half two. As light broke, I headed out to rant at God down the end of the garden again in my usual outfit. And I felt as low as I've ever felt, as broken as I've ever felt, as devoid of hope as I've ever felt. I, I describe it like this. It's like seeing life as a rich, colorful painting. And then when something like this happens, it's like someone just extracts all the color and life felt black and white. And I sat against a tree right by the River Thames that runs down the end of our garden. And for the briefest of moments, I thought, I'm not cut out for this, Pete. I can't do this. I don't have the strength. I don't have enough hope. I just can't do it. And for a moment, I just said to myself, I'm rolling in. I'm rolling in. And two things happened. Immediately, the face of Ethan comes so apparent in my mind. The same face I saw on the night. I told him what had happened. I thought, I can't do that for him. He's lost his mum. He just really doesn't now need to lose his dad. But I felt so tangibly this figure alongside me who wasn't saying anything but was weeping alongside me. And I so strongly believe, and I did write that in the book, I'm not leaving this story out just to suit a secular audience. I believe that was Jesus alongside me. I believe that he sat alongside me that more actually throughout this journey and has shown nothing but compassion and understanding because as Tim Keller talks about um, in his book, the reason why we never experience true darkness is because Jesus has already experienced it. When the lights went out on the cross, he experienced true darkness so that we, even in our lowest moments, never know what that truly feels like. And that morning it felt as dark as it ever did, but still a light came in, a ray of light came in that allowed me to get back on my feet and head back to the house. And then the last thing I'd say on this is how much my experience of God the Holy Spirit has changed. And I'll tell this one story. It happened on the day of her funeral. We had an amazing, oh, that's the right word, but it was an amazing, powerful service in Reading at Greyfriars. We had the thing afterwards, 
Uh, I never call it by its official name because I just hate the name. And then we had the last slot at the crematorium on a Thursday afternoon in mid-December of 2017. And we head back there, a close group of friends and family. And, and it's just a desperate place. It's that time of year where the darkness is closing in early. We're nearly at the shortest day of the year. And as her hearse down the long drive to the crematorium pierced the darkness, I think all the emotions of the day flooded out. And I just shouted this blood-curdling no that just echoed across this crematorium. And I sunk to my knees, and this group of friends and family kind of pulled me back up again. And I know this guy called Carl Beach really well, and if you've heard of him, he runs Christian for Vision for Men. He's done, he does the gathering, that festival of men, and has had input into the message trust as well. A really amazing guy, calls a spade a spade faith-wise, you, you know what he's like. Uh, and this gruff voice of Carl Beach echoes from the back of this huddle around us in the chill. And he just says, Lord, right now, I pray that your peace will descend on this man, on this family, and on this place. Amen. I realize he sounds like someone from the Queen Vic <laughs> at EastEnders, but he, he does sound something like that. And into this gloomy, hopeless room we went. And I've never really understood what that verse, the peace of God that passes of all understanding, actually means. I really did on that afternoon, because in the most grim of places, the most hopeless of places, this remarkable peace began to descend, so much so that I'm beginning to smile as we remember Gemma, rather than feeling the pain of the loss of her. A woman stood near me who happens to be married to one of my best friends, Graham, has no faith at all. She lost her brother to suicide only 18 months before that day we were stood there. As we gathered at the house a couple of hours later, she said to me, I can't explain it, but I stood there I, it was such a horrible place. I've never, ever felt a peace in my life ever before that I was feeling in that particular moment. And there's a guy singing, who happened to be our old curate from Greyfriars in Reading. There's a guy singing near me. Is, um, you know, that song, You Bring Light, You Bring Love in the Darkness, was sung by a guy I know called Chris Saban through the horrible speakers. She said, this guy's singing. I know he's got a really bad voice. He sounds like an angel. And it was remarkable. I'm not saying life got easy after that. It really didn't. In times, it got even darker. But that's the amazing thing about God's Holy Spirit. And that's what actually that verse means. It's God's peace coming to dwell within us in a place where, quite frankly, peace should not dwell. In the most hopeless and chaotic of places, that's where God's peace, God's supernatural peace through his Holy Spirit works and brings peace in the most impossible of situations. And I can't think of a place more impossible than that place that afternoon. And yet, remarkably, remarkably, his peace reigned. Incredible. And, and, and imagine standing there that day, if someone had fast-forwarded you to here now, two years on, you probably would, couldn't even have imagined any future. But actually, imagine you're always going to, profoundly and deeply miss Gemma. There's always been part of you that will be in pain over this. But there's hope, isn't there? And I know you said to me, I, want, I just want to talk about the future. And, and there's hope and there's some really wonderful new things that are happening in your life. Do you want to just let us know about those? Yeah, that kind of question of the where that began to replace the why. Where are you, God? What one thing it showed itself where actually God was is what God always does, Pete working through people. 
You know, Bill here coming to see me a few times. Just as I didn't know Bill at all before this happened. He actually kindly came across from here, spent one or two days with me just chatting stuff through. Random people getting in touch. You know, I've become best friends with a guy called Dan Ritchie who runs a farm who's just been the most remarkable friend over the last couple of years. God began to show himself through the kindness of other people. And there's one person who's just become the epitome of all that, but so very, very much more. And in the early months after I lost Gemma, uh, I began to get to know this, this, this woman called Darina, who became over time a friend, and a friend who was able to support me in ways that actually some of my closest friends and family weren't able to support me, because of course they were peeling, uh, dealing with their own pain at the loss of a friend and of a family member. Darina didn't have any of that to deal with but got alongside me in the most remarkable way, actually got alongside my boy in the most remarkable way as well, and just became this incredible friend who actually pulled me back from the brink on some darker nights that came in the months after that day by the River Thames in that December of 2017. And over time, I began to fall in love with this amazing, amazing woman. And something that I never, ever expected to happen. She is in here right now, but I'm not going to point her out because she'll kill me <laughs> if I point where she is. But God has blessed me with this amazing woman. You know, for people who've never been through this, I think, well, how, how does that work? But actually, I'll tell you how it works. Because when something like this happens in life, sadly, often for us, it takes something like this to happen in life. We appreciate love and we appreciate life in a very, very new way fresh and different way. I, I liken it to having not just the lens on your life change, the entire camera body. Life just smells different. I want to live each day and make it count because I've seen how short life can be. And this woman has got alongside us and loved us in a way I never ever thought was possible. And I've loved her and I love her in a way that I never thought was possible because this has taught me actually not lessening Gemma in any way, shape, or form. It's taught me what love actually is. And I feel enormously blessed to have met this woman and also to see what she's done in the life of Ethan. Because a lot of people say, oh, it's all down to you and, and everything, and of course, God as well. But actually, a huge amount of it's down to the way Doreen has got alongside him, given him permission to talk about mum. And, you know, it's not always been easy for her being the next person. Good comparison. I can never be as good as her. She's been everything and more. She's been utterly incredible, and just a little nice note to finish on. And this is where God does bring amazing things out of really tragic and desperate situations. Uh, listen, just for the, for the for people here who are, are maybe in that parallel universe experience right now, uh, or, or, or you, you, maybe you're even in that place like Simon next to the river thinking, should I just throw myself in? There is a God in heaven who loves you. And you don't always have answers to the why question, but there's always an answer to the where question because he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, Psalm 23, says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. And uh, Simon's talked amazingly both about the pain and the struggle and the questions around that, but also the hope of the peace that the Holy Spirit brings us in the present. And he's modeling the hope there is beyond that parallel universe. And so please, please, if you're struggling today, be honest with someone about it. Uh, maybe get the book, 
that will help enormously check out Alpha uh, and begin to explore these questions of faith. But I wonder if we could just show our appreciation uh, to Simon Thomas. Thanks. Thanks, mate. I don't know about you, but um, I just found that incredibly profoundly moving and incredibly human and real. So, Simon, thanks so much for that. Um, it's just brilliant. And what we're going to do is we're going to stand, first of all, and we're going to respond in worship um, because it seems like the right and the appropriate thing to do. So let's all stand together. The band are going to come and join us on the stage, and we're going to worship, and then we'll... We'll give some time and space for people to uh, be prayed for if that's what they would like. Simon talked about when you experience uh, grief like he's experienced or maybe you're in a mental health struggle, you feel like you're living in a parallel universe to everybody else. And if that's you today, we would just love to pray with you. Now, looking around, I know that there are people in this room who are experiencing that. And so the way that we're going to do it is um, without wanting to expose anybody, I would just love you if you felt comfortable just to put your hand in the air. And that's the reason for that is because we love you and we want to stand with you. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable, we totally understand, but we want to give you that opportunity for us to pray uh, with you and for you. And just one of the other things, I feel it would be remiss at the end of a talk like that that finished on extraordinary hope um, not to offer people in this room an opportunity to respond. It may be that you were brought here by a friend and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian uh, or you were a Christian and something difficult happened and you uh, have kind of lost your way a little bit. Well, I'm gonna, there's, there's two ways that we can respond. The first is, uh, I would love to invite you to join us on Alpha, in, uh, it, which starts on the 4th of February at Founders Studio. It's led by Sammy and her amazing team, and it's really an opportunity to talk about this kind of stuff, the big issues uh, that are happening in your life. Is there a God? Does he care? Uh, is he with me? What happens when we die? What happens when bad things happen to good people? So if you haven't done Alpha and you have these questions, I would really love to encourage you. I'd invite you to come. It is going to be a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant course. We'll be talking more about that in the next few weeks. But if you're visiting, please do consider yourself welcomed. You can sign up on our website. Sammy's at the front. Come and talk to her. The second thing I'd love to do is offer you an opportunity to respond. It may be you think, you know what, I just need to do something now. And uh, without wanting to be twee or without wanting to put any pressure on anybody, you may just think, I just need to ink something in, so to speak, to nail my colours to the mast, to recommit myself or commit myself for the first time to following Jesus, recognising you know, none of us have all the answers. None of us know everything. We're all just family trying to get home together. Um, but it may be that saying a prayer, committing your life to God, 
asking him to be with you will help. So I'm going to pray a prayer. You can answer that. You can sort of repeat that in the silence of your own heart. And I'd love to give you a Bible just to help you on your way, maybe suggest where you start. It's quite a big book. There's quite a lot to it. Um, um, but I'm going to pray that prayer now. And I'd uh, feel totally free either to underline that promise you made many years ago or to write it in for the f- first time. So this is the prayer. Let's all close our eyes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you promise to always be with us. Thank you that you're with us in the best moments of our lives and the worst. And I don't understand everything that it means, but I know that you died for me. Because of that, I can be forgiven and I can be set free. I want to give my life, trust my life into your care today. Please come and fill me with your spirit. I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong that have hurt me and hurt other people and I ask for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So just as the band continue to play for a minute, if you are one of these people living, feeling like you're living in a parallel universe and you're comfortable, I'd love to invite you to just put your hand in the air and we will gather some people around you. The people around you will ask you your name. They'll ask you how they can pray for you. And they'll just say a really quick prayer if, if you're comfortable. So let's just give a minute for that, a couple of minutes for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, there's a few hands going up. Do, if you're standing near those people, just introduce yourself to them, ask them how you can pray for them. We'll just sing that chorus one more time uh, just as we um, just as we close so that people have time to be prayed for. Your plans. Your plans. Yeah.